Welcome to You Wear It Well. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Heiserman, physical therapist and founder and CEO of Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services. We're at the intersection of fashion and technology, otherwise known as wearables. We look at the people, products, and research that make up this exciting world of wearables. Are you a fashion designer, electrical engineer, or someone with the dream of designing a wearable? Apply for membership to my LinkedIn group page, Biotech Fashion, and join in the discussion. Are you a startup? Wearable company? Don't know where quite to go from here? Well, you have the questions, and Spectrum Ergonomics has the answers. Go to our company website at www.spectrumergonomics.com and click on the link wearables. There you'll find a wide variety of services and other contractors that we work with to help make your product become a reality. We're here to help you through the process of iteration to packaging and beyond. Well, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of You Wear It Well. And today's very special guest is Oscar Idagon. And this is the second time we've had Oscar on the show. The last time we had Oscar, he was talking about some of the work that he had been doing in his bachelor's program in Turkey. Well, Oscar's back again, and he's got some different work, of course, very fascinating work, but he's also somewhere else right now doing his work. But I'm going to let Oscar go ahead and let you know where he's at and what he's doing right now. Oscar, the show is yours. Oh, hello, Mr. Heiserman. Yes, uh, nice to meet you again. So I'm uh, doing my master's degree in Japan, Osaka University, um, with uh, Max Scholarship, I think the most prestigious Japanese government scholarship. So I focused on robotics engineering, um, especially the bio-inspired technology, wheel technology, and rehabilitation technology based on deep learning and artificial intelligence. So today I would like to talk about one of my uh, projects like called um, Brain Computer Interface about the transfer learning from real to imaginary data. Okay, very good. So um, to, to break it down for our listeners, when we talk about brain-computer interface, that's that's a pretty cutting edge, pretty new topic. We, we, often, we don't often think about the brain and computer interface other than maybe we get mad at our computers because they're not working the way that we want. So, but, so give us some detail. What, what is brain-computer interface specifically as far as how does that operate as far as working mm -hmm. with a, a computer and then 
of course, then eventually letting us know how does that apply to wearables? Okay, of course. Um, brain computer interface or brain machine interface is an um, innovative way to communicate or control of the variable uh, devices or rehabilitation devices uh, like prosthetics or the other kind of robots. So um, we can um, predict or control the movement by using brain signals. So to measure these brain signals, we generally use EEG data or ECOG data. So after um, to measure these brain signals, um, we by using um, brain-computer interface, um, we amplify the data, then we digitize. So when we digitize the brain signal data, uh, it's easy to model it. And if it's more, if because of it's getting easier to model it, uh, we can control and communicate with the, uh, the prosthetic arm or the other variable devices. In other case, um, it's really hard to control the prosthetic by the behavior or the thinking of the people. That's fascinating. So basically, we're at the you're at the phase now where you're looking at somebody being able to tell their prosthetic hand grasp pick up a pen grasp a spoon pick up a bottle of water okay yes. that's 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 pretty amazing so give us a little bit of the of the details of i mean how does that work you talked about briefly about taking you know the data you take the data from eegs about people saying, I'm going to move my hand, and then mm -hmm. you can digitize that. And then that can then, is that then stored? Is that stored as art, like an artificial intelligence program that then can be utilized in some sort of a software program that's actually on the wearable or on the prosthetic or part of the prosthetic? Yes, actually, it's the correct way <laughs> what you mentioned. So it's, it's stored, then it's utilizing for the uh, device. Um, I can say that um, for when we use the brain-computer interface, um, we can classify the data. Like um, we can predict the imaginary movement by using the motor movement, real action. For example, um, we can use the real uh, finger movement, and according to this finger movement, we can predict the thinking, the idea of the people uh, to the next move. So next move. So for this one, the most of the time we use embedded systems for the devices, variable devices. Like for these embedded devices, we implement artificial intelligence, especially deep learning. For deep learning, we generally use a conversational neural network. So when we use conversational neural network method, we classify the data like if the data is imagery data or real data, and how can we implement this real or imagery data to the system, like as an embedded system? So this is the key point, actually. Now you talk about the imaginary uh, movement data. What what yes. exactly is that, and where does that come uh, from? Okay, imagery movement data is like. Um, as action, now maybe I can talk with you. So my tongue my, it can move, but uh, my brain can think another movement. For example, I can think about what will I do tomorrow when I talk with you, but you cannot understand from my tongue movement. So, or maybe uh, my brain can think to move my hand, like as, as an example. Or, but at the same time, 
because I am talking with you, my tongue is moved. So this system can classify uh, which movement I can do. Like um, now I'm doing talking with you, so my tongue is moved. However, uh, with, by using this system, because my brain is thinking about to move my hand, so the system, the robotic arm can move the arm, even I talk with you. So this is the point actually. So the imagery movement, what I think, not what I do action as action. So this is real movement. Uh, my tongue is a real movement, but my hand, if to move like a robotic arm, so this is imagery movement because I'm thinking to move the robot. Gotcha. Okay. And that's, uh, that's an important differentiation too. When you take a look at um, what you were just describing, I, and I never thought about that, that, that mm -hmm. um, there's actual, you know, thought movements. Uh, I'm thinking about doing something, but it's not actually happening. But then I'm, when I do carry it out, that it, it becomes real. So where, what's the importance of using this imaginary movement data with wearables? Uh, actually, um, um, these are, I mean, the, most of the BCI technology called the innovation of the future communicational control method for wearables. Because um, when we you implement the imaginary data or movement to the system, um, the people can, uh, like as a rehabilitation purpose, the people can uh, behave or the the traits themselves in home by using this kind of systems because they just need to think about to move their hands and then the system will improve the ability of the moving their hands so they don't need to yeah they they they, they give you the opportunity to treat themselves easily and like it's a cost effective system and easy and uh, how can I say the flexible system because there are many ways to do it. I mean, you can think to move your finger or you can think to move your hand or there are many kind of several type of actually moments. That's fascinating. So you had mentioned that, that it can be used in rehabilitation. So this is this this will eventually end up something that a person can take home. They've had a They've had a stroke. They're doing better, but they're still having some trouble, you know, grasping a fork or grasping a cup. And they may still be getting some therapy, but it's not in the hospital anymore. So this is something they can take home and will actually give them opportunities to to do their therapy, so to speak, with their hand at home. Is that correct? Is that yes? It's correct. Now, for example, I'm working on the epilepsy patients, so I'm collecting the data from epilepsy patients. So the, with by uh, collect after collecting this data, I classify classify the the tongue movement or the finger movement or the resting state between the tongue and uh, finger movement. So yes, so instead of epilepsy patients, we can use stroke patients or Parkinson patients. Then we can analyze the data and we can classify it by using deep learning methods. After that, we can implement implement this uh, the method to the system. Then we can use it. Oh well, you know, they just you just talked about three three distinct areas of neural rehabilitation. You just talked about stroke. You talked about yes. epilepsy, and you talked about Parkinson's. All three very different characteristics. All affect the brain, but affect it very differently. What are you seeing as far as differences between this the imaginary movement? between these, those three different classifications, the Parkinson's, the stroke, or mm -hmm. CVA, cerebrovascular accident, or 
the epilepsy. Are there some pretty major differences in the EEG readings for these imaginary movements? Because they, they all, those particular problems that you just discussed, they all affect movement differently. The, the yes. stroke person has more difficulty with certain movements. Parkinson's has difficulty with movements, but in a different way than somebody with a stroke and epilepsy the same way. So yeah, how are you differentiating that? That's pretty fascinating. Mm, yes, of course. That's a good, great question, by the way. <laughs> Uh, first of all, we use different brain areas, the regions. So because each type of movement has classified classify in different parts of the brain. So we need to uh, analyze which uh, brain uh, we need to put the electrodes, or like EEG data or ECOG data, which parts of the brain we need to get the information. So this is the actually main difference between these three patients' uh, recordings. After that, uh, of course, there is a difference between the uh, algorithm for this kind of uh, three kind of uh, diseases or the problems. So uh, after the choosing the correct place of the region on the brain, uh, and then we amplify the data, and then we digitize the data. After that, um, like in deep learning algorithm, there are some uh, filtering stages. So in these filters. Uh, we classify, classify the, uh, the bandwidth of the signal. So this signal is depends on the, what type of, uh, treatment you want to use to the patient. Like if you want to use for stroke or if you want to use for epilepsy patient, this signal's, uh, bandwidth is different. So we need to, uh, select the, uh, the if appropriate, uh, the filter stage for the uh, algorithm. So actually, these are the differences. So the, the region, the selecting region, and uh, the deep learning algorithm, and the filtering stage. So what kind of filter we need to use. So these are the main differences, I can say. Well, that's fascinating. Are you noticing any differences? And, and if, you can't dis if you can't disclose that because it's part of your research that you're doing or have done, and it's not published yet and you don't want to put out that, that's okay. I understand yes. that. I'm just asking, I'm thinking out loud to myself here is that, okay, so we've, you're putting the EEG electrodes on a particular part of the skull to be able to read what's going on in the particular lobe or region of the brain. Are you starting to make any connections between the, the frontal lobe? Cause that's our thought processes. You know, the, the thought begins in the frontal lobe and then mm -hmm. it, it, it shoots back to whatever lobe it needs to go to, depending if it's, even if it's, if it's listening, you know, more auditory, or is it going to be more in the parietal lobe? Uh, spatial awareness, things like that. Are you starting to see the differences in the EEG readings between people that have had a stroke or they have epilepsy or they have Parkinson's when it comes to the frontal lobe sending the commands to the particular other lobes of the brain? Hmm. Actually, uh, this question is kind of difficult for me to explain because um, I work on only for epilepsy patients in BCI technology because I, I search for the understanding to my research, for my research to, I search for the stroke, uh, Parkinson and epilepsy patients, but for my research, I only use epilepsy data. So I don't know actually to, I cannot compare the, this results, results, according to results, I can't compare this three. So I, but if I need to talk about epilepsy patients case, I can say that yes, we can say that we can uh, compare with the frontier part of the brain because after the model stage, uh, we can uh, get the accuracy. 
So we can check the accuracy of the model. So for example, if the accuracy of the model is uh, less than 70% or 60%, that means that uh, the connection, the relationship doesn't work. So we need to change the algorithm to improve the accuracy of the model. So we are creating the model. So this model's accuracy should be more than maybe 90%. Uh, after that, we can say that, okay, we can get the relationship between the frontier part of the brain and the R signals. So we can classify, classify in other case. Okay. So I imagine that this is probably takes a long period of time. You get in your data and then, like you said, you're trying to take a look at accuracy. Give, give the listeners an idea. What, what are we talking about on the average months where you're working on this accuracy of data? When you're taking a look at frontal lobe of thinking part of the brain that says, okay, I want to move my hand. And then the actual movement of the hand and then that particular accuracy you're talking about in the actual model, how long does yes. that take in this case mm -hmm. that you're doing? Yes, actually it depends. It depends on the situation because, uh, but I can say that, okay, it takes months, but it depends on the situation. For example, um, if you get, if you want to get the, the, um, exact accuracy, you need to get uh, more data. For example, for deep learning algorithm for conversion network, the, it needs to use um, a lot of data. So because of collecting a lot of data, you need to check many patients. You can do it by using a less number of the patients, but you cannot get the high accuracy. So since you need to collect the high amount of data, it takes several months actually, but you can finish it uh, less than one year, actually. It, it depends on seven months or eight months, actually. It, uh, there's a other condition. Uh, if you are lucky, you can finish it like five months to collecting data, but it can be up to eight or nine months because uh, sometimes, you know, some people use the left hand, some people use the right hand. So if you didn't ask the patient which hand, for example, if you want to, collect the hand data, finger movement data, and you didn't ask, if you didn't ask your patient which hand did they, did they use, it can be problematic because the data is different because they use the different part of the brain region and uh, you can you cannot get accuracy, the high accuracy because some people use left hand and the data is different and the other next patient maybe use right hand, the data was completely different. So you cannot compare them. You cannot combine them. So first you need to get, uh, these are the key points. For example, if you want to compare, uh, the finger or move, uh, hand movement, you need to ask the patient which uh, hands they normally use. And this gets you, uh, this gave you actually three or four months in advance advantage because now you can get the collected accurate data. But as much as you can, uh, we always welcome to uh, the many uh, patients because data is always better. More data is always better for the deep learning. So if we have time, we need to collect data as much as we can. We can. Yes, there's never enough time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spectrum ergonomics and Occupational Health Services provides a broad array of design and engineering professionals for your wearable project. We feature the following design specialties. 
pattern making, digital textile, athletic wear, sensor, fashion, exoskeleton, robotics, and mechatronics. We also offer beta testing of your wearable in our private clinic. You choose the demographics and sample size, send us the sample, and we take care of the rest. For more information, go to www.spectrumergonomics.com for more information. Hey, if you're a startup wearable company and you'd like to be able to get your information on this podcast, please contact me at my company website, www.spectrumergonomics.com. I'd love to be able to feature a little bit about what you're doing to let the world know about your wearable. Well, thanks for joining me at the intersection of fashion and technology. And may you wear it well.